we just couldn't believe it. You know, we were sitting there marvelling and I guess it's almost a euphoric moment where you've thought about it, you've dreamt about it, you've tried and you've failed and you've tried and you've failed and then you're sitting there in the sunshine in the paddock on a normal day watching the very first time your invention work. It was an incredible day. Welcome to Behind the Veil. My guest on today's episode is Cedar Anderson, the inventor of the Flow Hive. The Flow Hive is an invention which allows beekeepers to harvest honey without opening the hive. It took Cedar and his dad Stu 10 years to invent. Prototype after prototype failed. And when it finally worked, they didn't have the money to manufacture it. So they turned to crowdfunding. Their goal, $70,000. Within eight weeks, they had raised 12.2 million. It was one of the most successful crowdfunding campaigns in history. And it all started because Cedar just did not like the traditional way of harvesting honey. So in my early 20s, I started keeping a small commercial apiary and harvesting the conventional fashion. And it felt like, like almost a crime to, to drop off these buckets of honey to the shops knowing just how much work went into harvesting that honey. And also, I, I didn't like the level of uh, disturbance I was doing to my bees. And, you know, I kept pretty aggressive bees, so they weren't happy about the, the process of the honey harvesting. And, of, of course, it's long and involved, and you've, you've got to uh, get all of those frames to the processing shed and go through that process of of uh, uncapping and putting them in a centrifuge and spinning them and cleaning up all of that mess. If you're not familiar with the honey harvesting process, I'll give you a quick rundown. The bees store honey in comb built on frames. So to harvest the honey, you need to open the hive, pull the frames out, and get the bees off. And there are a bunch of ways of doing this. You can shake them off, brush them off, or use something called an escape board, which is like a one-way door, so the bees walk out of the box that contains the frames of honey, but they can't get back in. Anyways, after that, you need to take the frames away from the bee yard to your honey house. This is the processing facility. You get your frames and cut a thin layer of wax off of the comb and then put the frame in a centrifuge and spin it around. The honey spills out and then you can bottle it. It's tedious work that takes a long time and it's really sticky and messy. And I was hopeless at cleaning up so the place would stay a mess and you know, um, I think we all know <laughs> how that is uh, um, if you've kept bees before. So from that came the idea of there has to be a better way. Can't we just tap the honey straight out of the hive uh, while the bees are just going about their business? And then that's it. I guess that's what started, what turned into a decade-long pursuit. Long before the start of this pursuit, when Cedar was just a kid, he was tinkering with other inventions. His upbringing was pretty unique. His parents were hippies, for lack of a better word. They met at a healing festival and were part of a group that founded a small community on the side of a mountain in New South Wales, Australia. We had 15 houses or so in an intentional community on the side of a mountain, and that was largely in the forest. 
So it was a, a real, I guess, connection to nature, but also a, a, a way of living where we were self-made in a certain way. Like to make power, we would, we would invent this turbine in the creek to, to, uh, to power our homes and, you know, solar panels and all of that. And we were able to um, self-sustain to a certain extent, but we weren't completely a self-sustained community either. We would also buy in produce and, and all of that as per normal. But the, the great thing was there was this freedom as a child because there was 20 other kids that I could run around with and everybody on the community was, was our friends and considered our family. So it meant you could roam anywhere and have the, the sense of no stranger danger and also all of the learning that comes with all of those amazing people in community to learn from. One of the people Cedar learned the most from was his dad. I mentioned him earlier, his name's Stu. He worked as a potter, a ceramicist, but also was known in the community for just being extremely handy. He could fix it all, and Cedar would watch. We would spend our time fixing cars, making machinery work again, working on electrics, plumbing, whatever it was, you name it. He um, was one of those guys who was skilled across all trades. So that often meant creativity to work things out, to make things work, to invent things, to keep the community going and uh, keep all the systems in place to um, make the farm work. Can you tell the story of the sort of go-kart that you and your friends made? So that was a, that was a cool thing and it, it was an evolving thing as well. Like, first of all, we, we just got parts of an old scythe mower and we put a trailer on the back and we got a, a generator engine and we put that on it and we were able to, you know, put a whole pack of kids on the back and, and steer this monstrous contraption. And we used that to go to school. I guess I would have been, I don't know, uh, seven at the time. So four of us would ride to school down this four-wheel drive track and we would, we would um, arrive in this crazy contraption and uh, hop across the creek and then we'd be at school. So that go-kart went through various iterations of design where we were like, come on, we've got to make it a bit better than this. So I would cut up a whole bunch of bicycles and weld them together and, and created suspension using, you know, old car inner tubes as elastic bands and all sorts of things. So throughout primary school, we would drive that thing and it was great because the parents wouldn't have to drive what was probably a, uh, a half hour drive to school. We could just drive ourselves um, down tracks that you couldn't get cars down. But this thing was able to, to navigate the terrain. I know personally if my dad would have walked into the garage when I was seven and saw me cutting up a bicycle, he would have freaked out. I think most parents would have that reaction. But Cedar's father had a reputation for being very relaxed around danger. And that meant it, it was a lot of freedom for us. And he just trusted us to work it out. And yes, we, you know, almost died a few times, but generally <laughs> we were fine. And, and we were able then to, to really experiment. Like he'd teach us how to weld. He would teach us um, all sorts of things and just leave us to it. And that meant we were able to, I guess, get skills from a very young age 
and create. We also didn't have TV on this community. So we didn't have that, uh, those distractions. It was all sort of more within. So, um, you know, the influences, instead of being out there on YouTube, like the kids these days or, or wherever it may be, we're just coming from our local community. So my father and then one teacher at, uh, at one of the schools would teach us how to pull all parts out of old cars and get all the horns and connect them all together and you'd, you'd connect them together and make this crazy musical instrument. And then he'd teach us how to make fireworks and we'd measure the speed of sound by putting the firework under a tin at a known distance and watching it go up in the air and sit there with the stopwatch and so on. So it was um, an upbringing of creativity and of learning from the immediate surrounding people. It was this upbringing that made Cedar crazy enough to think you could create a beehive that would let you get the honey without opening it. The beehive most people use today is called a Langstroth hive. It was invented in the 1800s. It's a pretty big deal to try to come up with a new hive design when the one that most people use literally hasn't changed in hundreds of years. But Cedar was confident that there was a better way. And as soon as you have that thought of there has to be a better way, and it becomes even harder to do it in the conventional way because it's like, well, there has to be a better way. Why am I doing it like this? He started prototyping. Just like the go-kart he made as a kid, he used whatever he could get his hands on to try to build this thing. So we lived on the smell of an oily rag. So we didn't have 3D printers. We didn't have um, injection molding machines. I literally ran, uh, you know, uh, our cars off old fish and chip oil from the chip shop and most of the tools I used I would collect beside the road on hard rubbish day and I would, I would repair. And I lived in a, a shed that was also, you know, the workshop. So it was that kind of life, right? And so the things we would use for prototyping would be hot melt glue, uh, simple craft knives, drills, just your basic um, things. And so we would get existing um, foundation or, or drawn plastic comb and we would carve it up into different shapes, literally with a knife painstakingly, sometimes over um, many days sitting there at night. And I guess this is where you're right. There was a bit of an obsession where, where I'd sit there with trying to create the idea I had in my head into reality simply with a knife. And at any point was anyone like Cedar, my man, just put the frame in the extractor, <laughs> you know, this isn't, <laughs> this isn't worth your time. Well, this is the interesting thing. As, as an inventor, you have to be careful not to let your idea out of the bag. And it started to get to the point where I wasn't sure whether I was totally paranoid like a paranoid inventor not wanting to show anyone or whether it was justified. But I stuck to my guns and kept it a secret. And that was for two reasons. One is some very early feedback I got was, oh yeah, you never do that, right? And that takes the wind out of your sails. And I didn't want anyone's input. I didn't want anybody to take the winds out of my sails. And I was sensitive to that. So for that reason, I decided to keep it secret. And the other reason is, if you let the cat out of the bag too early, somebody else will beat you to the market with your own idea, which there's plenty of uh, examples of that in history. 
when you say it was a secret how big how big of a secret like don't tell your wife's secret or like don't tell anyone outside the family secret so don't tell anyone outside the family okay. and even even with family it got tricky because um there'd be times where you know um even though you've said look this has to stay a secret um you'd find out that they had talked to somebody about it and then you end up chasing that person they talked to down and saying, look, you know, we have to keep this under wraps. We're trying to get patents in. If, if that idea is published anywhere on the internet or something like that, then we actually can't get a patent on it. So it was this kind of um, serious thing that we seriously had to keep it a secret. Ten years is a long time to keep something a secret. And that's how long it took to get the flow hive to actually work. There were a few reasons it took this long. For one, cedar still needed to work. At the time, I was a paragliding instructor, so I'd be out teaching paragliding to, to earn some money. And I lived on a pretty low wage. We're talking less than $20,000 a year, which is low for, for this country and, and so on. And I would just do bits and pieces like teaching paragliding to get by and uh, spend the rest of the time either chasing clouds across the sky uh, or um, occasionally I'd be um, on a job working for Greenpeace, uh, flying a paramotor uh, that would fly me around the world to do jobs like that. The other reason it took a while is that bees are not honey factories. It takes a while for a colony to make honey. So Cedar would make a prototype, stick it in the hive, and it would take months to figure out if it worked. It was this long process of making something putting it into the hive and waiting a long time to see what the bees thought of it. Because in the end, you've got to match up something that's useful to us and something that the bees will like and use. And that's what made it a really long process because sometimes you're waiting three or four months to get an answer from the bees. And the answer is usually, uh, uh, you know, they didn't use it or, or uh, it, it didn't work. And, and so on. So it was just these ongoing tests uh, over years and years to, to finally arrive at something that worked. He tried everything. Casting piston plungers that went down cells and pushed the honey out. That didn't work. Other times I'd be trying to work out a way that I could uncap the frames within the hive with various different coatings. That didn't work either. So he tried using suction. No luck. And then one day, Cedar's father walked in and made an observation that changed everything. Woke up one morning and thought, well, hang on, it's so hard to get honey out of a hexagon matrix. What if it wasn't a hexagon matrix when it was time to harvest the honey, but it could turn back into hexagons when the bees would refill it? And I started producing this kind of uh, horizontal separation of comb. If you, if you imagine fully drawn comb and you draw a pattern through it and you separate horizontally the bit with the capping on it and the backing, so you've got two kind of egg carton shapes coming together to form cells. That was the first test that started to show some success and it had old car tire, uh, car tire inner tubes as diaphragms and basically the bees uh, capped the cells in the hive and you know joined all of those parts together and I literally would suck on a tube to get the diaphragm to pull the experiment apart and that did allow 
the honey to flow down. And while I was getting somewhere, my dad, after a couple of strong coffees one morning, went, hang on, how about instead of going horizontal, we go vertical? And he made this shape with his hands. And all of a sudden, I dropped everything I was doing, ran into the shed, and we started to create a, a vertical um, prototype. It's so much easier to understand how the flow hive works when you actually see it in action. So I'll link a GIF of this vertical hexagonal separation that Cedar is describing in the show notes. Go check that out and then come back. So finally, he had a design that seemed promising. Cedar and Stu put the prototype into the hive, returned several weeks later, and turned the mechanism that separates the cells. And we put a, a measuring flask underneath and we measured how much honey came out of those two cell lines when we moved it into those, that zigzagging pattern. Then we multiplied that by the whole frame and went, wow, it actually got most of the honey out of the frame. This is actually going to work. And at that point, we started really backing ourselves and, and thought we, we need to create a bigger, a bigger prototype to prove this out. The problem was to create a bigger prototype, they needed a 3D printer. And 3D printers are not cheap especially the ones they needed for this sort of invention. To get the resolution we needed, we had to spend $2,000 on a very small section of comb to, to do this test. Now, that was a lot of money when we had that. My father had not a penny to his name and neither did I. So it was, it was a bit of a reach to, to take that plunge and create that next prototype. Now, what we did is we put that into the hive and we had a, a cam mechanism to move part A, part B of every cell line and a spanner on the outside of the hive. And that was what became the first successful honey harvest without taking apart the hive. We turned that spanner and outflowed the honey and it just worked incredibly well and we, we just couldn't believe it. You know, we were sitting there marveling and I guess it's almost a euphoric moment where you've thought about it, you've dreamt about it, you've tried and you've failed and you've tried and you've failed and then you're sitting there in the sunshine in the paddock on a normal day watching for the very first time your invention work. It was an incredible day. Finally, they had their first working prototype, one that was good enough to turn into a real product. The thing was real, and they needed to figure out how to make more of them and how to sell them. And the pressure was on. My other half, Kylie, she fell pregnant with her first child. And at the same time, the landlord of the place where we were doing all of this inventing and the place where we called home, this was not on the community anymore, but a property that I still live at now, well, that landlord put it on the market. So all of a sudden it was like, hang on, no, no, no. This is, this is our place. We've planted our orchard. We live here. This is where we're staying. Um, look, we've got this invention. Don't sell it. And they're like, oh, what, the people living in the shed want to buy the place. You know, it's almost laughable. <laughs> and, um, and, they, and we said, no, no, it's, this is going to work. And they said, right, but we're still going to sell the place. Like, oh, okay. So we had this... Um, the motivation was getting higher and higher. We had a baby on the way. We were about to get kicked out of our home. 
we had this pre-production prototype ready to go. Let's get this thing going. Even though Cedar was never really motivated by money, it was time to think about money. It was time to think about this like a business instead of just an invention. We were thinking about the commercial market. And we actually designed our flow frames to take automation, thinking that that would be the obvious next step where we could have systems in place and when the honey was ready, the frame would harvest itself. But as we got closer and we now had, you know, our, our patents in, we, we were starting to produce frames that we could show people, then it became really clear that the people that were interested was the home market and not the commercial market. So this was a big pivot towards um, making a hive that people in the backyards would really like. Why was that? You talk to commercial beekeepers and what, what would they say to you? Uh, the, the ones that we showed were like, wow, that's a great idea for someone else. Basically, they were happy with the way they were doing it. And they've got, you know, a million dollars or so invested in their processing plant. And the idea of, I guess, investing more money per hive didn't make much sense to them on a commercial scale. A lot of backyard beekeepers, on the other hand, really wanted this thing. So they pivoted toward marketing this invention for hobbyists. So far, the prototypes they made were only a portion of a frame. To sell this thing to backyard beekeepers, they were going to need full flow hive frames. They needed injection molds, which are crazy expensive, around $20,000 for just one mold. They needed money, so Cedar met up with people who had money. They considered what most people do, which is to sell a piece of the company to get an investment and get the company off the ground. But none of it felt right to me. None of it. I didn't want to give away, you know, half of the, half of the the company um, really early on to, to venture capital. Uh, I, I didn't want to partner with the company and, and lose control of what we were doing. And I had seen this thing called a glyph, which was simply a clip for your phone, so you could put it on a tripod. And they, they put it on crowdfunding. And they were able to raise enough pre-sales to get their manufacturing going, and they were away. I thought, that's so clever. Instead of ending up with a warehouse full of stuff that nobody wants, you get to actually test the market first. And you don't have to put the big money down until you're, you're, you've actually got buyers. So, so that just made so much sense to me and I kept coming back to it. And I went to a crowdfunding workshop trying to learn as much as I could. And at that crowdfunding workshop, the, the panel told me that, no, your idea won't work. You know, crowdfunding's for widgets and gizmos. Don't do it. I walked away going, stuff you guys, I'm going to do it anyway. And uh, <laughs> I guess I had that kind of blind, stubborn optimism in me. With this optimism, Cedar recruited his family for help. There was a lot more work to do. They needed to take photos, make a video, write their crowdfunding pitch, and start doing some marketing. Mirabai, Cedar's sister, flew in to help. She's a professional videographer they had a goal to get a thousand emails before the big launch. So they created a Facebook page and put out some bee-related content to attract likes and get emails from backyard beekeepers. And then they posted a short teaser video showing people the flow hive. In the first 30 hours, we got to a million views and a thousand emails had come in. 
And at that point, life changed radically. We had to develop a team really quickly. All of our family and friends started pitching in. We had an enormous amount of work to do to respond to all of the inquiries. But what that did is it gave us this amazing launch where all of a sudden we had 250,000 emails. Things didn't stop there. They reached out to ABC and asked if they wanted to film the launch of the campaign. They were interested, but to make it happen, Cedar would need to fly into the city. Luckily, his grandfather lived there, and he had a FlowHive prototype, so no problem, right? Well, not exactly. His grandfather's bees hadn't produced honey, so they were set to be on national TV, showing off their invention to get honey on tap, and there was no honey. So we thought, what to do? So we took a whole sticky box of honey off my hive, and we took it to the airport in a suitcase. And we put that suitcase on the, on the, on the conveyor belt and they said, that's too heavy, you can't take that because a box of honey is a seriously heavy thing. It's like 100 pounds. <laughs> and we're like, oh, no, this is, we need this. So we thought, well, all we can do is ditch the suitcase. So we took off the suitcase and put basically a sticky box of honey <laughs> right on the conveyor belt, dripping honey. And they said, well, yeah, that's okay. And we watched this thing go down the conveyor belt <laughs> and leaving a sticky honey mess. And we thought, wow, the chances of that turning up at the other end are, are pretty small. And we jumped on the plane. We went down to our launch. And at the other end, sure enough, this box of flow frames, sticky honey just turns up. <laughs> and we pick it up and, and we put it on my grandfather's hive. ABC came <laughs> And uh, there we were, ready to go. It was frantic leading up to the launch. They were originally going to launch on Kickstarter, but then Indiegogo offered a better deal. And before they had actually made a decision about who to go with, they accidentally emailed all 250,000 people that they were switching to Indiegogo. And there was no going back after that. A quarter of a million people were standing by their laptops, waiting for the campaign to go live on Indiegogo. The ABC crew was filming, and Cedar's wife, Kylie, hit the button. And then, seven minutes later, they hit their goal of $70,000. We're still being interviewed, and someone's waving in the background saying, you've hit your target. And at that point, I grabbed my phone and just walked off camera, and that's what they showed on TV. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> walked straight out of the live interview. And, and then it was on. From, from that point, right, because all of a sudden it's like, well, you've sold out of everything you've put up. Uh, do we want to put more up? Yeah, of course, we put more hives up. Well, what delivery date? I don't know. How quick can we manufacture this thing? Or um, phone a friend and, and uh, you know, in the manufacturing industry, see if we can find out how long it's going to take us to, to get our manufacturing going. And the friend said, I have never seen anyone dial-up manufacturing at scale in less than six months and I was like ah and with my stubborn optimism I'm like oh, sure we can do it no problem uh, what's he talking about <laughs> so there we are just incredibly optimistic the orders coming in we had uh, in the two hours later we had a million dollars US of sales you know of pre-orders of our flat hive 
And that was a crowdfunding record as the fastest ever campaign to do that. And then it was the fastest to 2 million and so on and so on. The, their campaign just uh, started accelerating with incredible momentum. And we're there with our team going, well, what do we do? Just like with the go-kart contraption, just like with the Flow Hive prototypes, Cedar and his family found a way. This was seven years ago now. Over 70,000 Flow Hives have been sold in over 130 countries. But not everybody loves them. Some beekeepers see the Flow Hive as an expensive gimmick that doesn't really solve a problem. In a way, harvesting honey is one of the easier parts of beekeeping especially when you consider all the effort involved with managing pests, diseases, and swarms. At worst, Flowhive critics say the Flowhive encourages lazy beekeeping. Full disclosure, we primarily use traditional hives in our operation, but we do have a handful of Flowhives. You're, you have to know that not everybody loves the Flowhive. I mean, you just go on Reddit, right? And the people are... are loud with their opinions did mm. you anticipate i mean you had already spoken to beekeepers so i guess you must have been ready for there to be a, people who weren't thrilled about the idea but what do you what do you make of all that i guess we didn't expect such a huge response we mm -hmm. you know we didn't realize that putting your idea out and having great success meant that you were interacting with thousands of people on a daily basis and so we didn't expect to have so many people really uh, excited about our product and we didn't expect to have so many people who really didn't like what we were doing as well. So it was this overwhelming case of, of interest and we, uh, it, it was challenging in a way to, to have both the, the people who really loved it and the people that really hated it all um, happening at once. And I guess I would sit there and think about it and go, well, I get it. You know, we've dialed up this massive launch, uh, which, you know, has gone far and beyond what we ever thought it could. And there you are as a conventional beekeeper. Perhaps you like the way you've been doing it forever. And then you've got a thousand friends every day sending you, hey, have you seen this? Hey, have you seen this? Hey, have you seen this? So at that point, that beekeeper either has to embrace it and say, that's super cool, I'm going to order one and see what it's like, or I hate this thing, can you make it go away? Shut up, don't send me another thing. So I really get it that, there, that there'd be pushback and, and totally understand that and it and it's valid that there there should be pushback to something new as well um but i think the other piece is is people um felt like there was a influx of new beekeepers who um felt like beekeeping was as easy as turning a tap um and once you started to hear about that, I mean, you obviously, as a, someone who's been beekeeping a long time, know that that's not how beekeeping is. But did there suddenly feel a sense of responsibility to help these people who may have been getting into beekeeping because of the flow hive 
help them become responsible beekeepers? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I guess when we first made our video to put it out in crowdfunding, we thought we were, we were putting our invention out there for existing beekeepers. So our video wasn't necessarily uh, all about how you need to look after your bees. So, of course, when it attracted what was ended up being half new beekeepers, we got an incredible amount of new beekeepers asking all of the silly questions and so on. And that is definitely cause for concern. So I can see why our existing beekeeping fraternity, well, a section of them, were worried having so many new beekeepers at once, asking all the silly questions, not doing things right, uh, and all of that. So what we did is we uh, quickly started producing content to educate those new beekeepers, realising that uh, we not only needed to make this invention, but we also needed to provide education on keeping bees. Do you ever miss not having done this? I mean, do you ever just want to teach paragliding? and <laughs> tinker you know are you ever like oh look at the, you know i've created a monster or are you are you happy uh look definitely i have my moments where i'm like oh i'd just like to be gliding under that cloud over there it's a beautiful day the fluffy white clouds are littering the sky and i could be just gliding from one cloud to one cloud uh you know in that amazing sense of freedom and time that i used to live in and now, you know, there's meeting after meeting being scheduled and, and uh, you know, I'm not that guy in a way. I'm not the guy who, who likes my life scheduled at all. And parenting and school and all of that stuff is all of this scheduled environment. So I really do miss the freedom of just spontaneously deciding what I'm doing on the day, in the moment. And, you know, I hope, hopefully I'll, I'll get more and more of that, of that back over time. But, you know, of course, you make yourself busier and busier with more cool ideas as well. <laughs> One of those ideas is the beekeeper.org. It's the latest way that the Flowhive team is trying to have a positive effect on the environment and on the bee population. It's an online course designed to help new beekeepers manage bees responsibly. The content isn't just produced by Cedar and his dad, but by other beekeeping experts across the world. And 50% of the profits go towards organizations that support habitat regeneration. So far, they've generated enough funds to plant a million trees. And there are more ideas on the horizon. Cedar still gets time in his workshop. Have you, you, know, have you gotten into the groove of being the CEO of this multi-million dollar company. So it's funny, you know, like the dust settles for a time till the next something or other crops up. So I'm happy to say I'm getting more and more time to get back into the shed to work on new designs, work on inventions, and that's my happy place, right? Uh, so that that's really good. I've got an amazing team who is able to hold the fort and, and keep most things going. I'm, I'm still taking the CEO or whatever you want to call it position where, where the final decision stops at me. But a lot of those decisions can be made by the team now, which means that 
um, I can get back to inventing, you know, at least at least a few days a week, which is fantastic. Behind the Veil is a podcast by Buddha Bee Apiary. Buddha Bee Apiary installs and maintains honeybee hives in backyards. A big thank you to Eno and Michelle, our first patrons. Our goal is to regularly produce episodes of this show, and listener support makes that possible, so we created a Patreon page where you can contribute as little as $5 a month. If you'd like to learn more, I will leave the link in the show notes, and thank you again for listening.